bread. <laughs> she hates it when I do that. But she is a good reader, isn't she? Morning again. We're beginning a series today on Joseph, as you can tell, that'll take us through most of this term. We'll interrupt it at one point where we'll have a visiting speaker, Graham Sirkham, will be coming back uh, for the launch of a program we want to run called um, The Power of Presence, which will be very helpful for us as a church. Our theme, our focus this year, of course, is on being God's chosen instrument, instruments in his hand. Just like Yasmin, to be able to talk about the Lord Jesus in whatever context and whatever relationships we have with whoever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you listen to us, that you are with us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you by your spirit this morning might take your word and might um, nourish us with it, equip us with it, challenge and correct us, shape us by it in order that we can be instruments in your hands just like Lord you worked in Joseph's life so we know and invite you to work in our lives we ask and pray in Jesus name Amen questions are available uh, for connect groups or for you personally um, I did those yesterday and I haven't checked if Charlie has modified them or not oh you didn't Oh, they're a bit heavy. I think I was having a bit of an episode or something yesterday afternoon when I wrote them. And you can tell by what I'm about to do now. One of the questions is about, try to give this chapter a heading. And this is my favourite. When heaven says, cue the Ishmaelites. <laughs> Welcome to SDBC. <laughs> Did he do then? Cue the Ishmaelites. What heading would you give it? I came up with several other ones. And one of the things, when you give a message, a chapter or a sermon, a, a heading, if you imagine that you're doing it publicly, you're putting it in the newspaper or something, or advertising it on our webpage or whatever, then it's got to make sense to Joe Blow out there. That doesn't. But Joe Blow on the street would read, Cue the Ishmaelites would be, what's that about? But it's not for them out there, it's for you in here. And that's a phrase that I want to remind you of this morning and I hope you take that and use it. So I would like you to turn to the person beside you or just simply say it out loud. Cue the Ishmaelites. And the meaning of it will become clear and you can share it. Here are some other headings that I thought. Overcoming life's challenges. We back paying attention? Okay. It's about me now, right? <laughs> Overcoming life's challenges. How God works with us and around us. Or I could have called living in a broken family. Certainly that's the case for Joseph. His, that family was toxic. We'll talk a little bit about that this morning. From a special robe to a slave's rags. That encapsulates it. This was a long one. Sometime life takes you from the robes of a favoured son to the rags of a lowly slave. It's accurate, but wordy, isn't it? I told you I was having a bad day. This is my favourite. When heaven says, cue the Ishmaelites. 
Genesis chapter 37 falls into three paragraphs, three parts of a story. It's a very long story. It's the longest story in Genesis, just, about, just a bit longer than the story of Abraham. Genesis divided up into, of course, four major events and four key characters. There's the creation, there's fall, there's the flood, and there's the Tower of Babel. There's the four events, and then the four characters are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So we are in the last part of Genesis, we're in the last character of Genesis, and the chapter in the book of Genesis is really about God fulfilling his promise and his word that he gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. In 400, year, um, in 400 years from now, your, your people are going to be in another country and they're going to become slaves, and then after that I will bring them out. So we're going to look at each one of those paragraphs and reasonably quickly, I have 58 slides and if I spend a minute just on each slide, we'll be here for... 58 minutes. Here is the first paragraph, the first part of the story. Joseph is favoured and hated. Verse 1, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family. So while the story is about Joseph, in the book of Genesis, it's really about Jacob's line, the last of the patriarchs. And in this section of Genesis, Jacob gets both names. God changed Jacob's name to... Israel, And so it, the author flits, Moses flips backwards and forwards and you'll see occasionally he's called Israel. And that of course is referring to the man, not to the nation. This is the account of Jacob's family line, Joseph. He is the second youngest son, but as it says here, he is now a young man of 17 years. He is the firstborn son to Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel. And he, when... Um, when he was 12 years of age, he was, for those first 12 years of his life, he was just spoiled. He was doted on by his father and by his mum, undoubtedly. Then she got pregnant again and she had Benjamin. But when she gave birth to Benjamin, she died in the process of giving birth. So Benjamin is the youngest son and Joseph is 12 years older. So by this stage, Joseph is 17 and Ben, of course, is only about five. Here is Joseph, a young teenage boy. I guess back in those days, he's more like a young adult, isn't he? He's tending the flocks with his brothers. Now, not all of the brothers, but the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. So Jacob had not only two wives, Leah and Rachel, but he also had two mistresses, if you like, or de facto wives that he also had children with. Now, Leah and Rachel, his actual wives, had passed away by this stage. And so now Billa and Zilpah, who had been handmaidens to those women, have now been adopted, or he calls them his wives. Uh, and so he's, Joseph is out there with those four sons from those two women. And he brought to their father a bad report about them. Just Focus on that idea of a bad report for the moment. What's going on here? Joseph is Jacob's favourite. Ja ja Jacob is using Joseph to be a spy on the kids. Jacob is bringing back a bad report because Dad sent him, as he will do again in this story. And when it says a bad report... You probably read that to mean that, oh, he came back and the content of the report was bad. They were up to mischief. And Jacob, uh, Joseph, told Dad about it. He's a tattletale. He's a dobber. Or, and this is where it gets strange. Remember the 12 spies went into the land and 10 came back? 
and they brought a bad report. And their bad report was, their perception was, well, it was wrong, wasn't it? What they said was true, but it was exaggerated, it was amplified, it was distorted in some way. And so it's quite possible, that's what's happening here, that Joseph brought back a, not a bad report in terms of the content of what the brothers are doing, but it was an inaccurate, an inadequate, a poor report. It wasn't well done that Joseph brought back and said some things to Dad which were certainly not complimentary about the brothers, um, but also not fully accurate. That's probably the way it were to understand it. Over the years, and you may have heard this before, there are two characters in the Bible that have never, who, besides the Lord Jesus, who don't have any sin mentioned to them. Bible test time. Who are they? Daniel and Joseph. The one with Joseph, Daniel, of course, no sin is ever mentioned of him, but he was a sinner because in Daniel 9, he prays a prayer of confession, confesses his own sin. It just means no sin is recorded about them. Well, the same thing of Joseph, no particular sin is recorded, but if you read it carefully, you can see that you can't be dogmatic, but he's a flawed individual. Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. This is not good parenting, is it? I mean, it's okay to have a favourite, isn't it? You just don't tell them. Isn't that how it works? No. The kids know, don't they? I mean, my sister was spoiled rotten. She was the favourite. It's okay. I'm nearly finished therapy. It's fine. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. They're now grown men. And they're working for him. Why? Well, because Joseph was born to him in his old age. And so was Benjamin, but Benjamin was the cause of his favourite wife dying. That could have carried some stigma for Jacob in terms of his attitude towards young Ben. So Joseph was his favourite. And he made for him an ornate robe, a coat of many. That's how it's normally translated, King James and, you know, the stories and novels about him and so on. It could mean that, a colourful robe. The NIV translated as ornate, obviously, there. Um, and that could be accurate. The word itself probably means that it's a long-sleeved coat, robe, but literally the Hebrew word means it extends to the ankles, down to the feet. So it's a long robe, probably with sleeves, which would mean it could have been of many colours and it could have been decorated, it could have been ornate, it was special. And when you were wearing this robe, what didn't you do? Work. Joseph didn't have to work. He's a 17-year-old. And Dad, Jacob probably thinks he's doing the good thing, doesn't he? But what he's actually doing is isolating his son. He's turning his other sons against this young one that he favoured. He caused suffering and alienation for Joseph. But much worse than the making of the robe and the giving of the robe was the actual wearing of the robe. Joseph didn't have to wear it, but he did every day, everywhere. And I don't think he walked, I think he strutted. He's a 17-year-old, spoiled, obnoxious little teenager. You could read the passage that way, and I think that's accurate as we will see. 
When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, not dad, they hated him. And they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Literally, they couldn't speak peaceably to him. They couldn't even say shalom, which is like us saying g'day. Or good. They couldn't bring themselves to utter a word, a peaceable word. NIV says a kind word. I expect the expressions on their faces and the tone of their voice would clearly indicate that they don't like him, they don't want anything to do with him, and he appears to be completely unaware. He's more self-absorbed than even to notice. And now it's either innocent naivety or it's ob obnoxiousness, because look what happens. What were the mistakes of Jacob and Joseph? Well, I think I've alluded to those already. But Joseph, I think, made the mistake of actually wearing the robe and flaunting it, of reminding everybody that he was dad's favourite. He wasn't wise. And God had a job for him to do, and God's going to, through this chapter, particularly be growing him, stretching him, knocking off the rough edge, just like he does in our life. Joseph had a dream. It's one thing to have a dream. But then he told it to his brothers. A 17-year-old, how did he say it to his brothers? Hey, fellas, I've had this dream. What do you think it means? Or is it a little bit more hoity-toity than that? I had a dream. We're all out in the field together. And in the field, we're all gathering sheaves of wheat. And all my, my sheaves of wheat stood up and stood firm and upright. And your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down. What do you think that means? His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Do you actually think you are going to rule us? They hated him all the more. Why? Well, because of the dream. But also the way he used to speak to them. What he said. He's not helping himself. Did he have to tell them? What do you think? Is he learning? Is he maturing? Well, he's going to, but just yet he's just 17. He's a young guy. Then he had another dream, and he told that to his brothers. He's not learning. He said, listen, I've had another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, 11 stars gathered round, all bowed down to me. The sun... It's now gone cosmic. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars. Jacob interprets this for us. When he told his... And not only did he tell his brothers, then he, when he went home, he told his father and his brothers again. They heard it twice. His father tells him off, rebukes him, and says, what's this dream that you've had? Who do you think you are? But note this. His brothers were jealous of him, envious, certainly, but his father kept these matters in mind. His father treasured these up. His father paid attention to it. Jacob had his own dreams, remember? Jacob must have started wondering and thinking, what's going on here? Where are those dreams coming from? From God. And in Genesis, particularly in the life of Joseph, dreams come in doubles. And double dreams mean that they are definitely, certainly going to be fulfilled. When he's in prison, there are two dreams. Pharaoh has two dreams. 
In Genesis 41, it'll interpret that for you, that when dreams are doubled, that means that they are certainly going to be fulfilled. His brothers are now jealous of him. And that can be, in fact, the theme and the focus of the chapter. That's a key learning stroke out of it. Of What do you do? How do you cope with jealousy and envy? Either it's in your heart or when it's directed at you. And by studying this chapter, you'll pick up some very important clues. Um, his special treatment, I think, indicates he should have by now, you know, learnt the lesson that he should have kept his mouth shut, shouldn't he? Things have gone from bad to worse. He hasn't been helping the situation, but what does he do? He tells them the story. And I think, they think, he's getting just carried away with it. Um, Joseph, at this stage, is like a, a diamond in the rough and he just needs polishing. The special treatment that he received from his dad became probably, I'm guessing, his expectation of what life should be. He got used to it. He had an easy life. He didn't have to go labouring with the brothers. He stayed at home. He played his video games and read his iPad and did all of that. God had to shape him, mature him, to become an instrument in God's hands for good. His dream certainly predicted the future, but he kept flaunting this before his brothers. In doing so, he reveals a lack of discernment. He doesn't appear to be aware of the trouble that's brewing. It's like Jacob has poured petrol all over the family and he's given Joseph the matches. It's a little bit like that. And Joseph is, well, he's only 17. But he's not discerning, he's not wise, he lacks certainly sensitivity. He paid no consideration to the impact of his words or his actions of what that would do and how hurtful that would be to his brothers. And he certainly lacks maturity. One day he certainly would rule over them, but he wasn't ready for that yet. He had some other experiences that he had to go through. So, first part, Joseph is favoured and hated. Second part, second paragraph. This is where we get Q, the Ishmaelites, coming in. So Jacob said to him, look, the brothers have gone. They've gone up to Shechem. They're down south of Jerusalem, about 20 miles south in the valley of Hebron. And the brothers have gone all the way up to Shechem, which is about 30 miles north. It's 50 miles away. And again, Jacob is using Joseph as the supervisor. I want you to go and check on them. Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Report to me. So we sent him off from the Valley of Hebron. He's gone the 50 miles. Now, the reason that I picked this heading, when Joseph left, Dad, left the Valley of Hebron and he's heading towards Shechem, 50 miles away, that's going to take him at least a couple of days and maybe three or four days, depending on how fast he travelled and all the rest of it. When he gets there... He's going to get thrown into a pit and the Ishmaelites are going to come by. The Ishmaelites have already left. So when Joseph leaves the valley of Hebron to go find his brothers, God in heaven says, cure the Ishmaelites. God is not centre stage, he's not mentioned in this chapter, he's off stage. But he's directing all that is going on, on stage. When, things is out of, when life is out of control, he is in control. Remember that. 
cure the Ishmaelites. When Joseph arrives at Shechem, something else coincidence happened. A man found him wandering around in the fields. So here is this very well-dressed young Israelite walking around, and the Shechemites, if you go back a few chapters in Genesis, Jacob's brothers had done some terrible things to the people of Shechem. And so, you know, they had murdered and taken wives and treasures and plundered and done all sorts of bad things. And they've gone back into enemy territory because Jacob has land up there. This man finds, what are you looking for? He's walking around in the fields looking for his brothers. That's what he says in verse 16. Can you tell me where they're grazing the flocks? The man says to him, they've moved on from here. I heard them say they're going to Hebron. That's another 15 miles further north. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them near Dothan. He's now 65 miles from home. What God is doing is actually removing Joseph from Jacob. It would be 20 years before they would see each other again. How God orchestrates the circumstances of our lives. The brothers saw him coming. Of course they could see him coming because of the coat, but also because of his gait, the way he strutted. They recognised that from a distance. And then note this, and they plotted to kill him. They must have been really... They must have really hated him to plot to kill. I mean, we can get angry and you can say silly things like, I wish they were dead, but to plot, to plan, to kill, that's at another level, isn't it? Here comes that dreamer, quite literally, here comes that master dreamer, said with a little bit of sarcasm. Come now, let's kill him, throw him into one of those cisterns and say, ferocious animal has devoured him. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When it says a cistern, in Israel, in the ancient world, there were two ways to get water. One was by rain, and the other one was by storing the rainwater that fell. They would build these large cisterns, large tanks, holes in the ground, and they would cover them with um, plaster or something like that, um, hardened clay and, uh, in order to store the water. And then they're huge. They could hold hundreds of thousands of gallons of water, some of those we have discovered. And in fact, archaeologists have even found human skeletons inside them. So this was a sort of thing. It was used as a prison sometimes. So when they grab Joseph and throw him in, the passage will tell us there was no water in it. When Reuben hears the plot, Reuben is the eldest brother, he's the firstborn, he takes on a family responsibilities, but also trying to get back in favour with Jacob because he has done the wrong thing and he's out of sorts. Uh, so he's trying to earn his way back. Like, let's not take his life. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. They got rid of that thing because they hated it. Quite literally, they skinned him like an animal. Imagine the brothers, 11 of them, 10 of them, gathering around and ripping at it the garments and his clothes and just pulling and scratching and then eventually lifting him up and then dropping him in a huge hole so deep down that he couldn't climb out. And there he sat in the darkness, bruised and bleeding and probably naked. They intended to leave him there. They were going to walk away. Technically, they hadn't taken his life. They hadn't killed him. They hadn't shed his blood. So they thought... And then notice what they did. So then they sat down to eat their meal. That's callous. That's hard-hearted, isn't it? What meal are they eating? 
perhaps even the food that Joseph had brought for them. They looked up while they're eating their meal. In fact, what do you think Joseph's doing at this point? What would you be doing? He'd be calling out. What would you be calling out? Maybe he's calling out the names of his brothers. Levi, Simeon, Dan, get me out of here. Who knows? But they are sitting there, feasting, enjoying themselves, joking and laughing. I wonder if they thought that if we get rid of him, then maybe Dad will love us, you know, in place of him a bit more. While they are coincidentally having their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them all down to Egypt. Judah comes up with a brilliant idea. What do we gain if we kill him and try to cover up his blood? Let's sell him. Sell him to the Ishmaelites. They're going to Egypt. The international slave trade is rife down in Egypt, and they'll probably get you know, more money than um, for selling him down there than we'll get from selling him up here. Um, and so uh, we can't kill him after all because you know, he is our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. And the brothers agreed. I don't have time to stop and meditate on that, but notice how they move from a motivation to kill to a motivation to sell, and they think this one is okay. The subtlety of how sin works in our life, how our attitudes, and we can justify certain behaviours because at least it's not that, it's this, when both are wrong. So when the Midianite merchants, the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, uh, um, two different people groups, but they intermarried and they were interconnected and the words will be used interchangeably. So the Midianite merchants came by his brothers. They pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and look what they sold him for, 20 shekels of silver. The price of a slave is 30 shekels of silver. The price of a disabled slave is 20 shekels. That's where their value they placed upon Joseph. He's nothing more than a disabled slave. And they took him to Egypt. That's the point. That's what God was about all the time. Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus reminds us that their anger was in their heart a long time before it was expressed in their actions. They removed that coat from him, which was a symbol of their resentment. They threw him into the pit, so he was out of sight. Their hardened hearts then sat down to enjoy a meal, rather callously, no sense of guilt. And then they sold him into slavery and they made a profit. They each got two silver coins. 20 coins, 10 brothers. And Jesus says, if you harbour anger in your heart towards another, you've already committed murder. Something for us to meditate on and think about. What did God allow and what didn't God do? And if you read through the story, there are several things that God didn't do. He could have prevented this, but he didn't. That's the point I think we need to grasp. God allows things which are not nice. God allows things to happen to us, which we don't like. I'm sure he doesn't like it either, but he allows it because he can see the long picture. He can see the consequences of what are coming. When he was wandering around the fields in Shechem, God could have warned him, go home, don't go to Dothan. The man who came and found him gave him instructions. 
If that never happened, he wouldn't have gone to Dothan. He wouldn't have ended up in the pit. He wouldn't end up in Egypt. If the Ishmaelites didn't come by, he wouldn't have gone. And we're about to read, if Reuben, Reuben tried to intervene, man, Reuben had gone away, and when he comes back, he's gone. Well, if Reuben had to come back earlier, then it wouldn't have happened. There's lots of things that could have happened that didn't happen that God allowed for God to achieve his purpose. Think about that in your life of where you're at and what's going on. So Joseph in the first paragraph is favoured but hated. Now Joseph is removed. And the final chapter paragraph is that Jacob is deceived. The deceiver is deceived. Just like he deceived his father, so now his sons are going to deceive him. We'll go very quickly through this. When Reuben returned to the cistern, saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? So they got Joseph's robe. They killed the goat and they dipped the robe in blood. They didn't just cut the robe. They would have torn it to bits because their story is going to be and Jacob is going to draw the conclusion that a ferocious animal has eaten him. You know, the wolf didn't take the coat off before it ate him. So the coat, it may be even just a piece of the coat that they took back for him. Sorry, fat fingers. Um, Too far. They took the ornate robe back to their father and they said, we found this. Could you examine it and see whether it's your son's? Deception. He recognised it, said, that is my son's robe. This is his assumption, his false conclusion based upon misleading evidence. Some ferocious animal has devoured Joseph. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces, Jacob concludes. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to a guy called Potiphar, who will turn up next week, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Another circumstance of Joseph's life, how God was working in him. What do we observe? Well, this story reminds us about human depravity, human sin, and divine revelation, the dreams, come together. Because who's Joseph going to be? He's going to be the deliverer. He's going to be the one who saves his own family. Genesis chapter 50. Human sin, divine revelation coming together to form a saviour, just like the Lord Jesus. Romans 8.28 is a good verse for us, certainly to reflect on here. If we really genuinely believe that all things work together for good, that God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then that applies also, the challenge is that applies also to the painful, hurtful, tearful experiences that we have. Somehow God is still at work in this fallen world and even in this heartbreaking experience. So our challenge is to use these life challenges in order that we trust that he is using them to shape us to being his instruments. Joseph wasn't ready yet, but through these experiences, God is growing him, God is maturing him, God is developing patience in him, God is developing trust in him. Genesis 39 will open by saying, and God was with him, and God is with us. What has to go? One of my reflections in this passage is that Joseph loved his coat. To be God's person and for him to be used, the coat had to go. And so God removed the coat from him through his brothers. 
What is there in your life that you're hanging on to which is preventing you or hindering you from being God's instrument? What has to go? It's worth thinking about. Is there anything? I can't remember if it was Jim Elliott or Albert Schweitz, Schweitzer, Schweitzer, whatever his name is, who said, if I own something, if I have something, and I can't give it away, I don't own it. It owns me. That's what my point is here. Joseph couldn't give away his robe. It was taken from him. Life is lived moving forward. And you can't stop the clock and you can't wind back time or anything like that. But life can only be understood when you look back and when you look up. Day by day rolls around. Life is lived looking forward. What's God up to? Often it's not until you look back that you can see the way the Lord has led you. When life is out of control, he is in control, trust him. How does God grow us? There is the mathematical formula for what God is doing in our world. Does that make sense? Cue the Ishmaelites. Work the work of God within us, that's the first one, plus the word of God, then personal commitment, other believers, time and trials, and circumstances and coincidences. Got it? God is at work in us, both to will and to do with his good pleasure. He gives us desires and motivations to do things. God works through his word as we read it and respond to it and obey it. God uses what he works within and with his word to shape us. He responds to our personal commitments and looks for that in our lives. God uses other believers in our lives to encourage us, to correct us, to support us. And God uses time to grow us and he uses trials, difficulties to shape us, as well as the circumstances and the coincidences of life. There just happened to be a man who bumped into Jacob, Joseph in a field in Shechem. What a coincidence. There are coincidences happening in your life. There are circumstances that God is sometimes orchestrating, sometimes allowing, but nonetheless using to direct you according to his purposes. What did the Lord show you today? And what's your response to it going to be? Please think about that. Don't just dismiss it. Um, if you'd like a pastor or an elder to pray for you, then please come forward and we're more than happy to do that together. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing our final song. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's a, an incredible story, the story of Joseph. It's not about him, it's about you. That you're the one who is working in our world. You work in his life and in the lives of those around him and in the circumstances and situations. You even orchestrate things like the Ishmaelites arriving at exactly the right time in order to deliver him. Lord, open our eyes to see your hand 
Help us to discern your fingerprints in the events and activities of our life. And Lord, may you reign and rule in each one of us that your purposes might be achieved and that your name might be glorified. We ask and pray this again in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Please remain standing.